This episode is brought to you by Primal Mayo, made with pure avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, rosemary extract, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt. You can turn any traditional dish into a superfood with just one serving. Healthy Mayo, who knew? And DNA Fit. Providers of state-of-the-art genetic testing, their services build a roadmap for your individual health, fitness, and lifestyle goals by testing the genetic markers that make you unique. Learn more about DNA Fit's list of testing services at dnafit.com. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Hello, and uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host of the day, Mike Delandro. You can find me at paleomikeD.com, on Twitter at paleomikeD, and on Facebook at paleomikeD. Today, I'm absolutely ecstatic to be speaking with Nicolette Hahn-Neiman. Nicolette is the author of the book Defending Beef, The Manifesto of an Environmental Lawyer and Vegetarian Turned Cattle Rancher. So welcome, Nicolette. Thank you. Glad to be here. So before we get to the laundry list of questions that I have for you to uh, enlighten our readers, why don't we start off by having you tell the audience a little something about yourself. Well, I have kind of an unusual background. These days, I work on a cattle ranch. I have two young sons, and I live here. Our ranch is in Northern California. I work from home, taking care of them and our household and helping out on the ranch. And I also do writing and speaking about food and farming and especially trying to advocate for more sustainable farming practices and more sustainable eating practices. But before I came here, I was, my last job was working as an environmental lawyer in New York for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I had uh, accepted that job. Uh, before that, I was an environmental lawyer for the National Wildlife Federation. And I became, during the time that I was working as an environmental lawyer, I began to specialize in pollution related to the livestock industry because that is a big problem that really hasn't been very well addressed by either local or federal or state governments. And and when I began working on that as an environmental lawyer, I also began to meet farmers and ranchers and learned a lot more about farming and ranching and about different ways of doing things. And through that job, I also met Bill Nyman, who's my now my husband. And he was the founder of a network of smaller scale, more traditional farmers around the United States who are all raising their animals without using drugs and chemicals and raising their animals on grass. And eventually, I ended up marrying Bill and then moved here 
um, across the country from New York to California. So I'm originally from Michigan. So I've lived in, you know, quite a few places around the United States. And so I wrote, I wrote the book Defending Beef because I had this background as a longtime vegetarian also and as someone who's worked as an environmental lawyer on livestock issues and then now as a rancher for a long time because I realized there were just so many misconceptions about these issues. I really love your background to talk about this because it's so well-rounded. I have a lot of different kinds of experiences that I bring to the table, I think. Yeah, especially since, you know, you practiced in environmental law and you're a vegetarian. I think to speak about defending beef really gives you so much more credibility. Well, there are a lot of people, I've, I've realized that, especially nowadays where you don't have, you know, a lot of people are blogging and a lot of people are writing and there's a lot of information out there on the internet and there's not nearly as much editing and there's not as much, you know, sort of fact checking that goes on and stuff that's released to the public. And so a lot of people have opinions about these issues, but there are, there's an awful lot that's being written that isn't really based on the facts. And my background, actually my college major was biology. And so my training really is as a scientist and then as a lawyer and, you know, practicing law for 10 years and training as a lawyer. And so for me, the facts are very, very important. And really looking at the things that have actually been demonstrated in the scientific research is really important. And so I wanted to, you know, bring my, you know, sort of my diverse experiences and also my my ability to really look at the scientific information and sift through all that and bring it to this issue. Well, that's great. So let's dive right in. Obviously, yeah. we're going to be talking about defending beef today. So can you start out by describing maybe the classic and, as we both agree, the flawed opinion as to why some groups feel that, you know, cattle are harmful to the planet? Well, like a lot of, uh, you know, sort of myths and misconceptions that are out there, there is some truth to it, right? So there's a, there's a, part of this idea that is correct, but then it gets sort of exaggerated and misconstrued. So cattle are obviously large animals. And, you know, a typical mother cow, for example, might weigh, let's say, 1,400 pounds. So it's a big, heavy animal. And the presence of that animal can have a big impact on the land and on the waters that are nearby. The question is, what kind of impact? And whether that impact is negative or positive. And what I've really realized through my own work is that the impact that an animal like the cat, like cattle, you know, like a bovine has on the land is very, very different depending on how that animal is raised. So what's, you know, what I think the sort of classic environmental argument against cattle was for many years was that cattle were overgrazing huge areas of the United States and other parts of the world. And then people have over the years, and especially in the last few years, because there's a lot of drought in the United States right now, including in California where I live, people have been saying, you know, catalysts, they're too water intensive. The raising of beef is too water intensive. And then there's always, you know, in recent years, there's especially been this idea that cattle are a big problem from a climate change perspective. So those are kind of the main arguments that I think are out there against cattle. But what it turns out, if you look at it from a really scientific perspective, if you look at it from a truly agricultural perspective, then you realize 
that the impact of cattle is very, very different in each of those arenas, you know, whether you're talking about the impact on the soils and the impact on the water, the impact on vegetation, whether it's overgrazing or whether it's not overgrazing, et cetera, and whether or not it causes a climate change problem. All of that is really connected to how the animals are raised. So if you'd like, I can talk about each of those issues. Gotcha. So we're going to talk about overgrazing. We're going to talk about water. And we're going to talk about the impact to the atmosphere and potential impacts on global warming. Yeah. So starting with overgrazing, I mean, overgrazing is, I think, maybe almost the the most misunderstood issue. There have been, first of all, the, the numbers of cattle. People assume, you know, in the United States that there are these rising numbers of cattle in the in the country, and they assume that. They look at the American West and they see areas that are desertifying or that are really arid, and they assume that this is because of overgrazing. Okay, well, there are lots of facts that really contradict that. First of all, when you look at the total numbers of bovines in the United States today, it is substantially less. It's about 10% fewer cattle today than there were about 100 years ago. And in the last 50 years, the the total amount of grazing on on public lands for example has declined by more than 50%. So there's a dramatic decrease both in the total number of cattle and especially in the number of cattle that are on public lands in the last half century. So when people look at see a rising or a worsening problem with respect to desertification or overgrazing it doesn't make sense to you know, to correlate this with the number of cattle because the number of cattle is not going up. <laughs> okay. And especially in public lands, it's actually dramatically decreasing. So that's a very important starting point for the conversation. Second of all, there's a lot of really good evidence today that suggests that the way that you manage cattle is actually far more important than the number of cattle. So even though I've said we don't even have more cattle on the land, it's also true that we also have areas where we have lots of cattle that are very well vegetated and where there's no soil erosion. And then we have other areas where there's been complete exclusion of grazing and where the conditions have gotten much worse. And so people just sort of tend to look at areas and there may be cattle in that region and they assume that this, you know, the environmental problems are due to cattle grazing, but the evidence doesn't support that. And in fact, there's more and more research. I was just talking with a, a rangeland scientist from UC Davis the other day who is saying that there's more and more research showing that when you remove cattle from areas and you completely take away all the grazing, that there's a, an increase in various types of environmental degradation. So in some cases, you'll see a worsening of desertification. You'll see that land become more dry. You'll see less vegetation coming in. And and there's a whole bunch of research around the world. I talk about this in my book, Defending Beef. There's a lot of research showing that when you entirely remove cattle, you actually have a decline in biodiversity, both in terms of the animals and the plants. 
So, and even going down to the soil, the soil organisms, the microorganisms living in the soil become less diverse. And there are lots of reasons why that is believed to be the case, but there's no doubt that that is the case. So on the overgrazing point, I think it's really, that's just something that has just been misunderstood. People look at an area where they see that there are cattle or they know that there once were cattle and they see land degradation and they think it's due to the cattle. It's really not inherently from the cattle or intrinsically related to cattle grazing. It's all about how those cattle are managed. Secondly, on the point of water. Can we stay on? Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, overgrazing. No, just for a second. Uh, yeah. I know Alan Savory wrote a little bit for your book. I love his work. I love his TED Talk. Whenever I talk yeah. to somebody and, and they try to tell me that, you know, cattle causes, you know, areas that are fertile to become deserts. Right. I tell him to go watch his TED talk. Yeah. And I'm curious, have, have you seen areas personally, firsthand as a rancher that were more barren, were able to revitalize to be fertile lands? Well, you know, it's interesting you asked me that question because I've never been asked that before in an interview, but actually the answer is yes. And, and there are some areas right here in our local community because we are part of a national park right here. Our ranches and some of quite a few of the other local ranches are in the national park. And so we actually have local examples where cattle were removed for various reasons. As the National Park came in, or maybe sometime after the National Park came in and bought certain areas of land, and then cattle were removed, and what you saw was you had a decrease in the total vegetation, you had more dry areas of land, bare land, and you had fewer total plants and more brushy plants. So that's actually something a lot of people have probably seen, especially if they live in the western part of the United States, you, you can actually see the increase of these, um, like coyote brush as an example of it. It comes in and it it's a plant, it's a green plant, but if you look close, if you walk up to it, you'll see that there is very little grass around it. And that whole area might have been grass there before. So when grazing animals are removed, woody plants tend to come in and a lot of times those are these kind of scrubby you know brushy bushes that's kind of typically considered to be a sort of a transition between a grassland and a woodier environment but the problem is that with that comes the loss of moisture in the soils and the total loss of vegetation in that ecosystem and so you lose the water that's underneath the ground declines and you lose a lot of habitat for species that exist there and a lot of the wild animals that depend on that vegetation being there and then the vegetation declines. So that's exactly the kind of situation that scientists are seeing all over the world where you when you remove grazing. So yeah, thank you for that. That's a very good question. And and I should also add that yeah, Alan Savory, I actually was just, I just a few days ago gave a, a talk with Alan Savory. The two of us were uh, headlining an event together at a farm up in Vacaville, Soul Food Farms, that was hosting a, a what they called Grazing 101 conference, just talking about sort of using grazing in a positive environmental way. And Alan was the other main speaker along with me. And so, and I know him well and have heard him speak quite a few times. And I really admire the work that he's doing because it's based on his firsthand experience all around the world, 
seeing how when you remove the grazing animals, you you have a decline in the health of the soils and of the vegetation and then correspondingly all the wildlife that's there. But if you put cattle there and they're well managed, you can return the health and the water and all of the wildlife to that area. It's counterintuitive. People are really surprised by this and people resist this idea. Um, but he and his, you know, his organization that he started is called the Savory Institute. They have a wealth of data and examples from all around the world where they've been doing these projects. Yep, got it. You know what I love about him, too, is he comes out and starts off by admitting that he was trained wrong and right. his initial beliefs were wrong. And I draw parallels between cardiologists that all thought, you know, fat was bad, cholesterol was bad. And I really respect the ones today that said, you know, I used to believe that, but I don't believe it anymore. Yeah, I think that, you know, the whole basis of my book, Defending Beef, is that we had some really strong beliefs related to cattle and beef that kind of rose in the popular consciousness in sort of the beginning of the second half of the 20th century, you know, so like around 1960, 1970, in that time frame, we started to really think, you know, many, many people in the public and in the scientific community and the public health community and the medical community began to think cattle are bad for the environment, beef is bad for our health. And what my book says is we need to re-examine these ideas because they've actually largely proven to be untrue. Totally agree. I think a lot of things that have happened since World War II. I, I look at the planet sort of as a pre-World War II and post-World War II, especially when it comes to food and not just beef. Actually, we seem to do things right up until then, and then everything got sort of screwed up afterwards. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, you, that's a good point because that was right around the time, and and you know, World War II probably played a role in it. Um, because it was right around the time you really began to see what I would call the sort of industrialization of the way we produce food and especially animal-based foods. Because in my first book, actually, Righteous Pork Chop, I, I kind of go through the history and I make exactly that argument that, that it was right around the World War II and post-World War II period that a lot of the food policies emerged that turned out to be very, you know, negative over the long term. And that we... We began to focus on production, producing just large amounts of grain, and this whole shift to much more chemical-based agriculture So, um, and fossil fuel-based. So after World War II, it, chemical fertilizers and pesticides and, and, and herbicides had been developed a long time earlier, and especially fertilizers were developed in the late mid to late 1800s in Europe, but they were almost un they were not being used um, anywhere in the world, and including not in the United States. There was very little chemical fertilizer being used in the mid-20th century. But then, after World War II, we actually converted a lot of munitions plants, plants that had been built in order for, to produce munitions for World War II. They were converted to, to fertilizer production. And so... The war turns out to probably have played a role in this shift in in the way we produce food. Also, as I talked about in, in my first book, Righteous Pork Chop, there was um there was a desire both during World War II and after World War II to produce large amounts of food really cheaply, first to send to our troops and to our allies' troops 
during the war. And then after the war, we wanted to produce food, masses of quantities of food, more than we even needed for domestic consumption, because we were sending a lot of grain to post-World War II Europe in order to help with the, the food shortages that existed all over Europe after World War II. And so these historical events probably played a really important role in the shift in the way we produce food. But unfortunately for all of us, you know, the long-term impact of that has been quite negative, both in terms of our health and in terms of the environmental health. I wholeheartedly agree. Wholeheartedly agree. And, and, and it's going to be tough to change. We have time. I know we're going to talk about soil a little, a little later once we... Yeah. We talk about the actual impacts of cattle, but I, I, I certainly worry about the long-term impacts. So let's let's get back to that in a bit. Let's start on on your second point with regards to water. I know you have a whole chapter in your book on water, but let's right. start off with with water that cattle consume. Yeah, so water, you know, water is kind of my special expertise because when I worked as an environmental lawyer for three years, the majority of my time was spent on issues related to water quality and water quantity. So that's kind of how we break it down in environmental work. You talk about quantity of water, you talk about quality of water. So you've asked about how much water cattle consume. That's something I always like to start out by telling people the water that individual animals consume is probably a lot different than what they believe, you know, what they've, you know, typically heard there's a, a number, you know, there are numbers that float all around on the internet. It takes, you know, thousands of gallons to produce a pound of beef and a number that you see a lot of times is like 10,000 gallons and these sort of crazy numbers. There was a study of this question done by the University of California at Davis and they actually quantified it. They didn't just sort of, you know, come up with a worst case scenario number because they were advocating against cattle production. They actually looked at it and they looked at all the feed crops that are used for cattle in the United States and they looked at how much water is used to irrigate those feed crops and they looked at typical conditions that cattle would be living in in different geographies and they averaged all of this out to come out with the actual number for a typical pound of beef. Now, when you see the big numbers that you see all the time, those are actually worst case scenario numbers. And you can make a very high number that is, you know, based on, in a way, real data, but it's not typical numbers. And that's a very, very important distinction. So the typical number that University of California Davis researchers concluded is that they found it takes a little bit over 400 gallons of water to produce a pound of beef. Now, that sounds like a lot, and it is, because beef compared to some other foods is relatively water intensive. But when you compare it to a lot of foods that people very often eat, it's really not an outlier. So it's only slightly more than it takes to produce a pound of rice, for example. It's in the same ballpark as how much it takes to produce almonds, walnuts, avocados, sugar, coffee, chocolate, lots of foods that we eat every single day are water intensive. So beef is in that category, but it is not, you know, this crazy number that people sometimes say. Now, the other point is the number is even much lower if the cattle is totally grass fed. So again, it's really hard to come up with good numbers on this because you know, there are all kinds of conflicting numbers, but I used a number in my book that I had found from what I thought was a pretty credible source, and it said that the uh, typical pound of grass-fed beef 
was a takes about 120 gallons of water per pound. So it's again, it's it seems like a lot, but when you compare it to other foods, it's not that bad. And it's much less if you're talking about totally grass-fed beef. Now, if you think about the life cycle of the animal, the grass-fed beef, there are reasons why the, the number is much more favorable. Grass-fed cattle are, on, they're actually on grass, they're in pastures, they're on rangeland. And so when they drink water, that water actually returns back to that ecosystem. So it's either going to be in their manure or it's going to be in their urine, the vast majority of it. Some of it gets retained in their tissues and some of it just evaporates from their bodies, basically. But the majority of it actually goes back into the pastures and it rehydrates the the vegetation and it rehydrates the soil through the urine and through the feces. So that's actually good. That helps the ecosystem. So that water is not lost. And that's a really important point. Also, there's research out of Australia that shows that between 70 and 90%, depending on the time of year, of the water that an animal will need every day, a cattle animal will need every day, can be found in the grasses that they consume, in the vegetation that they're consuming. So the number is 90% when, you know, during the lush time of year, and it's more like 70% during the drier time of year. So cattle will, you know, drink a different amount of water throughout the year. But a lot of the moisture that they need, they actually get from foraging. So again, when you think about cattle in a feedlot versus cattle in grass, those numbers are quite different for those reasons. So grass-fed beef especially is not nearly as water-intensive as people think of. That's the water quantity issue. And that's even with grass-fed taking so much longer to get to slaughter weight. That's right. That's even when you consider the fact that it takes a lot longer, or it can take, I mean, it you know depends on the system, but it, like the way we do it here on our ranch, it does take longer because we really believe in raising the animals to a mature size and to a mature age because we believe that that produces the best feeding quality meat. So we really believe in doing that. There are some people that don't raise the cattle to, you know, as old as we do. Our cattle are typically almost three years old when they go to slaughter because we think that produces the best meat. But there is some variation in that. But yes, even when you consider that that fact, the the cattle are not a, a water-intensive user of water because they're always on pasture and all of the moisture that's going through their bodies is going right back into that grass ecosystem that they're living in. And they're getting the majority of the water they need every day from the vegetation that they're foraging themselves. So that's a very important point to, to make, I think. And, and well said. So let's talk about the third point, which is um, atmospheric gases and global warming. I think. Well, let me quick, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to say a quick word about water quality. That's okay. the other side of the water coin. So the quantity issue I just talked about, and quality is the other thing. Sometimes people think that, you know, agriculture is polluting. That's definitely true. That livestock operations are, can be water polluting. That's true too. But it's really a matter of how you raise the animals. And especially when you have them totally on grass. Again, if it's a well-managed operation, especially, and you have a good, healthy vegetative cover on that ground, which you will if you're well-managing your cattle, that's actually the best kind of environment for protecting water quality. In other words, keeping water from getting polluted because a really dense vegetative cover 
and the healthy soils that live below ground where you have a dense vegetative cover acts as an excellent filter for any water that does seep through the ground to groundwater. And also, there's very, very little runoff on the surface from rain that hits that ground because the water will actually get soaked in. So there's actually been, I talk, I, I cite a number of studies in my book, Defending Beef, that talk about how much more water is absorbed when you have healthful grasslands versus other uses like crop production or you know other kinds of human development areas. But well-managed gra- grazing areas are actually protected protective of water quality. They, they, that's actually an, an advantage of having beef cattle in the, in the food system. So it's not just the quality of the water, but like you said, it's the amount of water that a, a pastured, dense grassland will retain versus a tilled farmland that's growing wheat, corn, or soy. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, there's a huge difference. Basically, a healthy grazed area We'll have lots, we'll have a diverse type, lots of diverse vegetation on it, but it will be very vegetated. It will be, you know, covered in vegetation. Even during the dry season, there will be a lot of um, vegetation that's still there. And then there will be, there will be a lot of organic matter, litter, sort of covering the ground. The, the ground is never bare. That's the really important point. And that makes, first of all, it protects the soil from eroding away. But it also helps that when there's rain hitting the ground, it actually soaks in and the soil will act as a sponge. And then what water does go through there is well filtrated. So there are many, many benefits with respect to the water. In a supermarket full of mayo options, how do you know which one to pick? Well, there's an easy answer. The one that tastes good and is good for you. But here's the problem. Almost all store-bought mayonnaise contains industrial seed oils or eggs raised from hens treated with added hormones and antibiotics. Not exactly the best recipe for good health. Luckily, there's a new mayo creating a ton of buzz. It's called Primal Kitchen Mayo and contains only the finest superfood ingredients, including all-natural avocado oil and organic cage-free eggs. So no more trading good health for great taste. Go to primalblueprint.com today and pick up a three-pack. As an added bonus while supplies last, enter the code FREEBOOK at checkout to receive a free copy of Mark Sisson's Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings Cookbook with any three-pack mayo order. Got it. You ready to talk global warming? Absolutely. Fire away. (laughs) I think a lot of people who maybe aren't as educated as you on the topic or believe that cattle are harmful to the planet say, well, cows burp, and they fart, and they produce methane gas, and the methane gas is what's causing global warming. Right. Okay. Set the record straight. Okay. So now all of that is partially true. Um, at, you know, in fact, it's largely true. But there's, there's a problem with the way it's presented and understood. So cattle are ruminants. They have a special kind of digestive system that actually, you know, we talk about ruminating on something. Ruminating on something means you're kind of thinking it over and you're, you know, you're not going to decide something right away. You're taking your time. That's how the digestive tract works for cattle. They're, they actually get the food into their mouths. They chew it a lot. And then it goes into the first chamber of the digestive tract. And then there's a whole process where it comes back 
back through. It goes through. It's a four-chambered system. Okay. We have a single-chambered system. We have a stomach. They have these four-chambered. But they have this amazing process that goes on, It's which is called, you know, the rumination of, of the food. It goes through this process of breaking down, and it's with the help of a very complex community of microorganisms that live in this ruminant digestive tract. And so they're actually able to break down vegetation that most other animals cannot eat. In fact, very few animals can can survive off of the types of vegetation that they eat. It's basically non-nutritive plant matter for the vast majority of the living organisms on the planet. But cattle have this incredible you know, digestive tract that can turn it into nutritive food. So when when it does that, it's basically doing this breaking down of this cellulosic vegetation in this digestive tract. And as it's doing that, it's emitting methane, both burps and farts, although it is actually mostly burps, that's true. And then there's a little bit that comes out through their breath as well. But basically, it's, it is mostly through the burping. And it's because they have this very complex digestive tract that can take this inedible vegetation and turn it into food. Okay, so is this a problem from a global warming perspective? Well, yes, to a degree it is, because methane is, in fact, an important component of the global warming gases. But the question is, first of all, how much of a problem is it? Okay, this is one area that I think the the numbers have been wildly exaggerated. I mean, even worse than with the water issue, because you'll often hear even the number more than 50 percent. People will say more than 50 percent of global warming is caused by cattle. And that is so radically and wildly off of the actual numbers that it's just, you know, it's actually patently ridiculous. The actual numbers in the United States, um, the official numbers from the U.S. Department, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is the federal governmental agency that deals with environmental issues, their quantification of it is that all of agriculture is about 8% of total global warming emissions. And of that, about a quarter of it is from the ruminant animals. So about 2% of total global warming emissions are from not just the cattle, but all of the bison, all of the sheep, all of the goats, all of that. The domesticated bison, I should say. So all those domesticated animals that have ruminant systems all together make about 2% of the global warming emissions. So firstly, it's not nearly the number people often think that it is. 2% is not only the official U.S. number, but it's also the number that the U.N. uses when talking about the United States in the international United Nations climate change negotiations. So it is really the official number. Okay, now, what about that 2%? Well, it is true the majority of that 2% of the methane that comes from the ruminant animals relates to this the enteric emissions. I was just talking about the digestive tract emissions. But there's actually a lot that can be done about that. I, I actually wrote an op-ed for the New York Times a couple of years ago where I talked about this, and it was called The Carnivore's Dilemma. And there's even more research that's been done since I wrote that article. But in that piece already, I talked about the fact that there's research being done all all over the world, in Australia, in Europe, in the United States, everywhere that there are cattle, they're looking at the methane emissions and trying to figure out how to mitigate it. And there have been a lot of things that have been discovered to be helpful. For example, it's been found that where you have 
better pasture management where the cattle are better managed as far as their movements and their numbers and how long they're in any given place can reduce the emissions by the methane emissions by as much as 30 percent. Now, one of the researchers that's looking at this in Australia, Dr. Christine Jones, and some of her colleagues in Australia have actually made the case that when you have well-managed cattle, there are components within the soil that alter in such a way that they totally offset the methane emissions from the cattle's body. Now, I'm not as familiar with that as I am with some of the other research that's going on, but I've read some of some articles about the work that they're doing, and that's, you know, that's important research. But there's also research that's being done about how you can feed the cattle. There are things that have been shown that you can put it into their, their salt licks that can dramatically reduce methane emissions. Does the difference between eating grass versus, say, a uh, grain fed? Well, it's interesting. The research in that is actually quite contradictory. Some research shows that when you grain feed, that they have more problems digestively to digest grain, and therefore they end up having a higher level of methane emission. But some other research shows that on average, because you are killing them at a younger age when you feed them grain, because you get them to slaughter weight faster, that that's actually the total methane emission is lower. So I don't think, and I've seen a lot of studies on this, and they're actually about half and half, you know, whether it's grain-fed or whether it's grass-fed, which has a higher methane emission. So I don't think there's a conclusive answer on that question. But what I do believe is there's really good research being done around the world on how to mitigate methane emissions from cattle. And I think that that's making good progress. And ultimately, the methane will be brought down considerably. Now, rice farming is a good example of where this exact thing was done. The rice production of the world in the 1980s, according to some scientists, was actually the number one emitter of methane of all human causes for the world over. And that was known and it became a concern and it became a focus of you know agricultural researchers around the world and the number has been brought down now rice is still a major emitter of methane the world over but it's been reduced because it, it was figured out some things that could be done to bring it down i think the same thing is happening already and will happen more in the cattle industry so there are lots of reasons why the methane issue is is not nearly as serious Got it. Along that line, along the global warming line, and let's shift away from the cattle producing methane to how a a properly pastured animal actually causes the lands to be healthier, and the lands will then sequester carbon. Right. Great term I learned from your book, how, you know, pastured lands that have good grass cover will actually pull carbon from the atmosphere into the soil. And that's right. something that, you know, an Iowa cornfield will not do. Can you explain a little bit on that? That's right. So, in fact, we've lost a huge amount of, and this is the other component of the of the methane question. So there is, the research I talked about with Dr. Christine Jones from Australia was actually talking about specifically the soil itself mitigating the methane. But the other 
component of this is sequestering so much carbon that it more than offsets the global warming impact of the methane emissions. So this is kind of another facet of the question. So there's a lot of really good research that shows that we that the world's soils have lost a huge amount of their carbon over the last it's it, it typically is quantified from about 1850 because that's the beginning of the industrial revolution and it's believed that somewhere between 10 to 30% of the total carbon stores that were in the soils have been lost and it's a, it's a substantial or excuse me, I didn't state that correctly. This, the total amount of carbon that's gone into the atmosphere is from the soils, is what I meant to say. So it's a dramatic, it's a huge portion of the total amount of carbon that's now in the atmosphere that used to not be there, that comes from the soils. And it's a huge deficit that's now in the soils due to the fact that so much of the carbon has been lost. Now, that's an environmental problem, but it is also an opportunity because soils that are that are short in carbon are hungry for it. They want the, the carbon back in there. So a lot of the research nowadays in terms of sort of how can agriculture be better from a global warming standpoint is really looking at this carbon sequestration piece. And in fact, there's a, a lot of consensus within the scientific community that about 90 percent of the mitigation that can be done for agriculture's total global warming emissions is in carbon sequestration in the soils. Now, there's debate about the best way to do that, but there's there's a pretty good you know camp of people who believe that the grazing animals are an incredibly important part of that. And the reason for that is because somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of the world's land base is grasslands. And wherever you have grasslands and you have the grazing animals, you have the opportunity for massive carbon sequestration because grass is a, an enormous solar collector. You know, all the all the plants that are there, not just grass, but, you know, the, the vegetation that's covering these grasslands takes the sun and takes carbon from the atmosphere. You know, we all learned about photosynthesis in elementary school, and this is really still the key to all of this. It takes carbon from the atmosphere through the photosynthetic process, and it plants bring that carbon down into their roots, and in the soils, they engage in an exchange with the soil through microorganisms and through fungi that actually live on the roots and through a substance that was just discovered in 1996 by USDA researchers, the Department of Agriculture researchers, they discovered a substance called glomalin, which is considered to be a sort of facilitator of these subterranean transactions. And so you have all these different players in this transaction, but there's basically carbon coming from the atmosphere, going through the plant, down to its roots, and it is going out into the soils in exchange for nutrients that microorganisms are bringing back to the plant that the plant needs. So so it's a fascinating sort of, you know, economy that's taking place, all these exchanges. And this is all fostered by this substance called glomalin that I mentioned a moment ago that USDA researchers discovered. And then glomalin is also believed to be really important for encapsulating the carbon in the soil so that it remains there in a stable form. What's so interesting about grass and glomalin is that the research that's been done at USDA shows that 
glomalin levels are very high in grasslands. And in fact, it's the optimal environment for glomalin. And they've even shown that native grasslands are better than other types of grasslands. So it suggests that those places where you have really well-managed grazing and especially where the, the growth of native grasses are encouraged, you have the optimal environment for capturing and sequestering in a really stable form carbon from the atmosphere. And the grazing animals are really important in all of this because they sort of maintain these grasslands. They keep that healthy vegetative cover and they keep the soils healthy. And when you don't have them there, you have the degradation of the grasslands that I talked about a few minutes ago. I see it as a, I see agri, modern agriculture and especially monocropping, the growing of the same crop on the same land over and over again, really is a double-edged sword here. I see it on one side, not sequestering carbon and therefore creating a global warming effect. And then in your book, I read about how modern agriculture and not rotating crops or not allowing, you know, grass to grow and cattle to have pasture lands and, and alternate between growing crops and, and grazing cattle have right. to us losing the topsoil itself. And I think right. I was stunned when I read that the United States has lost 30% of its topsoil in the past two centuries. And for me, it's, it's, I never really thought about soil per se. I'm not a farmer. I'm an engineer, so I don't really touch the soil myself too much, but it's hard to fathom actually running out of topsoil. Yet I've done some research and there's people that say maybe 50 years from now, the U S might not have any topsoil. Yes, I talk a lot in my book, Defending Beef, about about this issue about soil and about soil erosion. And I, I talk a lot about the book by Dr. David Montgomery called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations. And he actually traces kind of the history of soil erosion going back thousands of years and shows that sort of every major civilization that didn't take care of its soils, which was the majority of them. <laughs> you know, when he, he talks about the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and the Mayans, and he kind of goes through and talks about their food production systems and shows they had to continually try to expand. In fact, he argues, and, and he's not the only one who believes this. This has been argued elsewhere as well, that, that the Roman Empire really had to keep expanding especially into northern Africa and so forth, in order to supply the food needs of its main cities in its original empire, the core of the empire. And they just had to keep expanding further and further out because they were losing their topsoil and their ground was becoming less and less productive. And so they actually were losing their capacity to feed their people, and they saw that. And so they just kept expanding in part to be able to keep feeding their people so that they would avoid the toppling of the empire, which eventually did happen, of course. But he argues that this is really, this goes, this all goes back in part to the loss of the soils and the loss of the topsoils that produce the food. So it's a fascinating concept. And what he said, what Dr. Montgomery says in his book is that you have to continually regenerate. And ironically, he points out that the Romans actually knew how to do this. There were, you know, agricultural books written at the time that said this is really important. You need to continually add manure back to the soil. You need to have animals grazing on the places where you grow crops periodically and, you know, put the, put these cover crops in, have these animals coming through because they maintain the fertility of the soil. And if you don't do that, you know, you lose the fertility of the soil and ultimately the soil itself erodes away, et cetera. 
But it wasn't the way most agriculture was practiced in ancient Rome. And in fact, that's true. Again, that's true for most of the civilizations that have covered the earth. And so it's kind of a fascinating idea that we've known this for a long time and that there are historical examples again and again. And he talks, he goes, you know, sort of forward, way forward in time to, to the United States and the early inhabitants of the United States. And when Europeans began coming here and they started going across, you know, from east to west across the continent, how there was a a lot of this sort of short term approach to agriculture where soil was used up and then people would just move on. And this was done a lot. And then, of course, we had the example of what happened in the Great Plains, where these historic grasslands where there had once been 75 million or more bison roaming there. And there were these, you know, the world's deepest and richest topsoils were there. And then people came and plowed it and didn't engage in the right kind of agriculture. And very quickly, that was turned into the Great Dust Bowl. And so there are just all these really dramatic examples in history of what happens when you don't take care of your soils. So what does this have to do with cattle? Well, cattle have played an incredibly important role, not just on the grasslands, the grazing areas that are continually used, you know, the rangelands that are always used for grazing and where you really can't grow crops. That's an important part of what cattle do. But they've also been a really important part of diversified farming, where you're returning the nutrients to the soils through the cycling that the animals foster when they eat vegetation and then they manure on those areas and the use of cover crops, which the animals graze. So there's this whole sort of cyclical approach to agriculture, regenerative approach to agriculture that grazing animals are a really, really important part of and that you really can't do very effectively without animals. I totally agree. I remember when I read Omnivore's Dilemma, and Michael Pollan described uh, Joel Salatin's farm. And it's still, the pictures are vivid in my mind of cows grazing in an area and going to the bathroom. And then Joel would cycle the chicken coop, the chicken mobile, and the chickens would go through the manure and spread it out looking for bugs. And, and then he would grow crops in there and grow well, everything around. And it, it's so not like it's done today. You know, now. Yeah. And this, and you know, the systems that, and I know Joel, I really like him and, and actually I was just talking about him earlier today. What he's trying to do that I really admire is he's trying to learn from nature's wisdom. And what nature does, there are all of these different ecological niches, you know, in any given natural environment. And every plant and every animal has its special little place in that ecological niche. And what modern farming does, what modern agriculture does, it has these huge singular, you know, monocrops, as you said, where you try to just grow one crop in a huge area. And then you have one animal, you know, separated from the land, separated from what it's eating, separated from its manure. I mean, it's manure then gets trucked away. You know, you bring the feeds to these animals. They're in barns. You're just totally disconnecting them, not just from the land, but from these all these natural systems and these natural cycles that they really need to be a part of, not just, you know, to for their own good and for, you know, animal welfare concerns, but, but for the systems to function in a sustainable way over the long term. So, I'm really troubled by the way, you know, animals are raised today for most food, but I'm also 
equally troubled if we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, livestock are the problem. But it's not livestock that are the problem. It's the modern way of raising livestock. And when you really try to come up with optimal systems, like on, like Joel Salatin is doing on his farm and like I believe we're doing on our ranch here, animals are part of that regenerative system that mimics nature. Agree wholeheartedly. So, unbelievably, we've already spent 52 minutes about <laughs> how we're going to use cattle to save the world. Since this podcast is part of a primal lifestyle, I want to save at least eight minutes to talk about how cattle, especially grass-fed beef, can benefit mankind from a dietary standpoint, yep. especially compared to grain-fed. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Well, obviously there's a lot of discussion about this and there are a number of studies that have looked at the the sort of nutritional profile of grass-fed beef and compared it to grain-fed. And what's been found in quite a few different studies, I think there's there isn't even that much disagreement about this point actually, is that grass-fed beef is consistently better in pretty much every regard nutritionally. Now, that's like vitamin A, vitamin E, you know, whatever you're quantifying, calcium levels, you know, omega-3 versus omega-6 ratios, total omega-3 quantity, you know, whatever you want to look at, the grass-fed beef is better. Now, that being said, the difference is not dramatic quantitatively, okay? So a lot of times you'll hear the sort of the mainstream cattle industry say, well, those are just minor nutritional benefits. And again, there is some truth to that. The, the numbers are not a lot bigger, you know, when you're talking about omega-3 quantities, for example, or vitamin E levels or whatever. But it's sort of an across-the-board superior product, nutritionally speaking. But I think what I argue in my book, is that despite the fact that the nutritional differences are not quantitatively really large, but they're important because it's part of a, a, a real difference in, in the way the food is produced. And so not only do you get um, food that is has a higher nutritional quant- contents inside of it, but you also have a food that doesn't have a bunch of stuff in it that you probably don't want in your food. So I'm not aware of anyone that's raising totally grass-fed beef, for example, that's using growth hormones. Now, 90% of the cattle in the United States today that are in feedlots um, are given hormones. Most cattle are given growth hormones on the ranch, and then they're also given growth hormones again in the feedlot. And so you have growth hormones throughout their life. USDA says that that's safe, and they and they say that that's not a health concern. But there are a lot of, you know, there's, it's, they're not allowed in Europe and they're not allowed in, actually, they're not allowed in most countries that we, and our major trading partners around the world do not allow growth hormones to be used. Because there are health concerns about using growth hormones and there are a lot of consumers that don't want growth hormone, you know, the residues of growth hormones or the possibility of growth hormones to be present in the food that they're consuming. So, I think that's that's one example. Another example is the continual feeding of antibiotics. So antibiotics are used therapeutically with animals sometimes when they're sick, 
But, and I think that's fine. I don't believe that antibiotics should be totally removed from the animal food system because I think if an animal is sick, it should be treated. But the problem is that antibiotics have become a crutch. They've become an enabler of crowded, unhealthy systems, and they've also become a way to cheapen production. So there's a lot of antibiotic feeding. Actually, this is a bigger problem in the pork and the poultry industry, but it is also a practice that's quite prevalent in the beef industry, In again, in beef feedlots. So for people who want to avoid the possibility of either antibiotic residue in their meat or the possibility of antibiotic-resistant bacteria being on their meat, grass-fed beef is a good way to do that. So basically, you're getting a product that you know is has a better nutritional profile and doesn't have some of the things that you might be concerned about, you know, impurities, basically. Right. So let's talk about saturated fat in beef. Last week, there was a, a government nutrition advisory panel announcement that they're no longer supporting the position that eating cholesterol will raise blood cholesterol. And I think that's big news and, and a good step. Right. However, that same advisory panel cautioned against eating saturated fat. Yes, exactly. They didn't quite go all the way. They also, some of the press coverage didn't really talk about this, but there were some articles a few weeks ago that noted that in their 571-page report, they also just generally backed away from the idea that fats per se are something that are bad for you. So they, you know, the it, it, low-fat diet was recommended by USDA guidelines up until this this point. I mean, they they've said basically that's not even a health a good idea from a health perspective. There's no reason to avoid fat. So that's a good thing too. But this is really funny. This whole thing with the cholesterol and with the low-fat diet thing where they've really literally done a 180-degree turnaround on these issues, it suggests very clearly that there's a pretty big problem (laughs) with these recommendations, right? Because they have a pretty dramatic impact on the diet of the American people and especially for children in the schools. And yet, obviously, they're not based on the best science. And they keep shifting the ideas and in some case doing going completely opposite directions, you know, from from one report to the next. They do it every five years. So I'm 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 delighted that they've now said cholesterol's not a problem anymore and that, that they've said actually the low fat idea was not such a good idea. But I am disappointed that they didn't take that they didn't back away from the saturated fat recommendations, which I think are incorrect. Because there's more and more evidence now that the rise in chronic diseases that we've seen in the Western world, in the United States and in other Western countries, which all began around you know, the mid 20th century, there began to be this rise in, you know, heart disease. Well, obesity especially was more in the last few decades, but hypertension, stroke, obesity, you know, diabetes, all of these things have kind of been steadily rising over the last half century. And there are some reasons that, you know, we've had huge shifts in the American diet. And I think everybody kind of knows, okay, we're eating so much fast food. 34% of our calories are now from fast food in the United States. So I think everybody kind of admits, well, that's part of the problem. But the question is, is it the hamburgers in the fast food? Because that's where a lot of people have have led, their, their minds have gone. In my book, Defending Beef, I actually show the actual consumption levels of beef and the actual consumption levels of animal fat. 
And what I talk, I use, you know, official government data for this. And I show that the total amount of beef consumption has declined really dramatically in the last few decades. It's gone down by about 25%. And in the last century, it's relatively stable. The whole red meat consumption has not gone up. And so the idea that these problems are connected to a rise in consumption of animal fats or red meat doesn't make any sense. And actually, we've, we've gone down about 20% in our animal fat consumption, animal saturated fat specifically, actually, over the last century. We've gone down by about 20% in that. So all of these notions that have kind of been fostered in the dietary guidelines that red meat and saturated animal fat are, are the cause of these things. Increasingly, the clinical data is showing up, is not holding up on those ideas, and the epidemiological research that seemed to show that is not really being supported by the new research. So I actually think that the saturated fat idea is going to melt away at some point in the future, too, you know, that that's inherently problematic, but we're just not there yet. Right. So, you know, I'm glad that they've made some steps in the right direction, um, and I expect that you know, more and more research is going to show what, you know, what, what is true. I looked at a ton of studies about red meat and health as I was writing this book. And there are very conflicting studies on this. But one, one study that I thought was probably one of the most important studies was done out of Harvard School of Public Health. And it was a very large epidemiological study looking at consumption and health data. And it said that when you took out all the processed meats, so things like, you know, bologna and salami and bacon, uh, that sort of thing. When you took that out, then the connection completely disappeared. So I think it is possible that there will be at some point research showing that some of the things that are being used in the process, whether it's the chemicals that are added or the actual physical process that the meat goes through in the processing to make some processed meats today, there may be some health concerns about those things. So I think people that are really concerned about that should avoid eating very much processed meat. But there's no reason to avoid meat that is, you know, fresh meat. I don't mean not frozen. There's no health reason to avoid frozen meat. But meat that hasn't been processed is perfectly healthy. And, in fact, I, I think it's a really valuable component of a healthy diet. Right. I, I remember when I first went primal, there was a, a, you know, a 10 second radio blip as I was driving to work one day about a study that said those who ate the most red meat, you know, were dying the earliest. And I waited a day or two because I knew Mark Sisson would put a rebuttal out. And right. sure enough, when he looked at his data of the study, the people that ate the most red meat were also the people that exercised the least, smoked the most. Right. Had a whole other host of issues. Where the study just picked out, yeah, they ate the most meat. And well, it's that. it's actually a huge problem with the epidemiological research now because what's happened is the idea that red meat is bad for your health emerged pretty strongly in the mid 20th century, and so for several decades now, you've had people that are really concerned about their health who don't smoke, who do exercise who eat fresh fruits and vegetables a lot, also avoiding red meat. And so there, this has really confounded a lot of the modern research today. So 
This is a problem, and I think, you know, a lot of the research that's out there is still failing to address it. But I think some studies are beginning to try to deal with that. Chris Kresser calls that the healthy user bias. And just, you know, to avoid that problem in the research, because people are self-selecting nowadays, and the people that are most concerned about being healthy over the long term and making good choices, avoiding sugar, avoiding smoking, exercising, are tending to avoid red meat. And so now we really have to figure out how to how to study that, the actual health effects of meat, with that given reality in the population. So, but I think, you know, to me, again, the, the epidemiological research, you know, is really important, but the, the demographic data is really, really important too. When we look at the United States population in 1900, it's believed that about 8% of people died from heart disease. But red meat consumption was actually a little bit higher than it is today. And so to blame the 42% of deaths that now take place from heart disease on red meat and animal fat is just nonsensical. I agree. I I think most people that are in the know, especially the people in the paleo community, know that it's the excess sugar and it's the so-called vegetable seed oils like canola oil. Um, Those two factors are really what causes, uh, you know, the LDL cholesterol to oxidize and has been found to harm arteries. And it's not and, consumption of the saturated fats. Yeah, and I have a, a chart that I sometimes use when talks that I give that shows the rise in vegetable fat consumption in the United States. And especially over the last few decades, it's just skyrocketed, basically. At the same time that we've been getting rid of animal fat in our diet. And this is paralleling this rise in obesity and diabetes, hypertension, stroke, even though smoking levels have come way down, you know, so there's definitely, you know, the evidence is far from clear that, you know, I mean, to me, it's clear that animal fat is not uh, the problem and vegetable fats are a much more likely culprit. But even for those people who really believe that it is the meat and the animal fats, they they have a problem explaining those charts. (laughs) There is just no way to to, to explain the the way these curves are not going parallel at all. (laughs) So I'm going to kind of wrap us up here. I want to give you a chance to put any last nickels out there. But I'd also like you to give some advice to consumers that want to make a difference in uh, supporting pasture beef. What kind of uh, words of wisdom do you have for them? Well, I do think that both for health reasons and for ecological reasons, it's a really good choice to choose pasture-raised foods, you know, whether you're talking about beef or eggs or dairy. Actually, the health differences are even more dramatic when you look at eggs and cheese. So there are very good reasons. It's generally going to cost more, but my feeling is that that's a real investment um, you're voting with your dollars, not only for your own long-term health, but for the kind of food and farming system that we want to have. So it's something that I think is it's a, a worthwhile investment in your own personal health and in the long-term health of, of our, you know, our ecology. And I would just say, you know, my whole feeling in writing Defending Beef has been that people have their minds very made up about these issues. And so anybody who's listening to this podcast, if they're talking to someone, you know, a friend or a relative or a colleague, a neighbor, whatever, who, you know, has this 
very definite negative opinion of beef or of cattle, just encourage them to think that maybe the issue is not settled. You know, we just need to, these are issues that people think are very clear and that the, the questions have been settled. And in my view, it's a dialogue that really needs to be reopened. And I think the grazing animals, cattle and other grazing animals, are an invaluable part of our food system. They make this 40% of the earth that is covered by grass a, a component of our food system, and they're maintaining those grasslands. They're actually enhancing the ecology of them. So, you know, I keep saying to people, whether you yourself are convinced that you should be eating beef or not, you should still support cattle in the world's food systems because they're a very important part of maintaining the world's grassland ecosystems. Got it. So how can uh, people find you in case they want to read more from you or, or learn more about you? I have a website for myself that has a lot of my writings that are just linked to it, which is just nicolettehannyman.com. Our, our ranch has a website, which is our ranch is called BN Ranch, and we are actually at a, eatlikeitmatters.com and that we have a lot of photographs of our ranch and other ranches that we work with and we describe more about how we raise our own animals and um, hopefully those will spur people into you know kind of motivate people to make better choices when they're um, going to the grocery store and thinking about what they're going to bring as food back into their own homes thank you so much Nicolette for taking the time to, to talk with us on this podcast today I really appreciate it it was fascinating Great. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right. So this is Mike Delandro. We're going to sign off here from the podcast. We'll catch you on the flip side and be well. Hey, it's Brad Kearns to talk about our partner on the podcast, DNAfit.com. Cutting edge genetic testing to identify your particular diet and exercise attributes and optimal lifestyle behaviors to align with your genetic expectations. It's great stuff. Try it out. Very simple process. You send a swab sample through the mail and receive by email a detailed written printout and graphic representation of all your genetic particulars that will help you inform the ideal diet and exercise practices that align with optimal gene expression. Take advantage of their 30% discount on their comprehensive package just for listening to the podcast. Enter the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at dnafit.com.